home. So Psalm 14 is where we are at today. Now I love this series in the Psalms because we get to see people like David recording their real-life personal struggles, their defeats, their triumphs, their depression, their celebrations, their failures, and their repentance. We get to see their questions of God's faithfulness, questions of his justice, their praises of his mercy and his forgiveness, his grace and his salvation. The Psalms are jam-packed with songs, prayers, pleas, and laments that all of our hearts can personally relate to and understand. For those who haven't spent much time reading the Bible, they view it as archaic or outdated, a list of laws and rules to make you a better person. And honestly, above all, they see it as some old book that has no tie or relation to me here today. So why should people even bother listening to the words that are from over 2,000 years ago? We, as believers know, as Zach prayed earlier, that God's word is living and active. It's like that double-edged sword, piercing joint and marrow, hitting us at the core of who we are. But for those who don't know or believe, who haven't spent time in the word, reading the Psalms can actually reveal the relevance and the truth that applies as well today as it did two to 3,000 years ago when it was first written. So for us this morning, may we take the time to listen to these inspired words of David, to hear the truths communicated through the man after God's own heart, and may it speak to our own hearts. So let's pray, and we'll get into Psalm 14. Father, we are so lucky to be able to come together here this morning, free of any persecution or anything, that we can just join freely together, singing praises to you, glorifying you. God, I pray that as we come to your word this morning, our, our hearts and our minds and our ears can be open to what your word has to say. I pray that it can speak to us in the ways that it needs to, that it can convict us or encourage us, it can challenge us or equip us in whatever ways you deem necessary. I pray that our hearts are open to that, that we are submissive to your spirit working in us, and that you can just mold us and make us more and more into the image of your son, that we can best glorify you in all that we do. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's begin at verse 1 of Psalm 14. We'll read the whole thing through, and then we'll start breaking it down. So beginning at verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, There's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. Then they will, be, they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, 
Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So David has some strong words in this psalm. And it doesn't seem to be based on any particular incident or circumstance in his life that would help us to better understand the context or the meaning of why this psalm was written. But rather, this psalm is concerned with a proper understanding of God and of humanity. David is describing the fallenness of humanity. That human nature is truly sinful, corrupt, wicked, and God-dishonoring at its core. And he's portraying God from his all-seeing and all-knowing heavenly dwelling as the refuge and the salvation for his people. So this psalm carries significant truths in regard to our nature as humans, God's interactions with his rebellious creation, and where salvation lies for those desperate for grace. This takes us to our first point this morning. Our hearts naturally disown God. Our hearts naturally disown God. Let's read verse 1 again. It says, The fool says in his heart, There's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. So David begins his psalm by stating, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. In other words, they are an atheist. They are believing there is no God. Now the word David uses for fool in the Hebrew is Nabal, or more correctly, Nabal, but I think a lot of us know Nabal from the story in 1 Samuel. Um, and this word, it means one who is senseless or not having any moral or religious sensibilities. So the fool David describes is not one who is mentally deficient in regard to knowledge. They're, they're smart, they're intellectual, but one who has a moral problem of the heart. He has no desire to please God and do what is right and good and true. He's senseless or willingly blind to these things. And we see this clearly portrayed in 1 Samuel 25, in which a man whose name is Nabal has a run-in with David that doesn't end well for him. And just so you know, most if not all the Hebrew names carry significance or meaning, so that's something to pay attention to as you're reading through the Bible. It can sort of clue you into things. Um, and you can read all of Nabal's story in your own time in 1 Samuel chapter 25, but I will provide a quick summary for us of Nabal and his situation. The story begins saying, Nabal was a very rich man. He had thousands of sheep, and he was married to a beautiful and intelligent woman named Abigail. And D David and his men were in the wilderness at this time, avoiding King Saul, and David's men happened upon Nabal's shepherd. David and his men treated Nabal's shepherds very well. They never harassed or stole anything from them. But instead, as 1 Samuel 25, 16 says, they were a wall around them, both day and night, the entire time they were with them herding the sheep. So David and his men were providing care and protection for Nabal's shepherds, serving as this wall while they're out in the wilderness with their sheep. And in return, David sends some of his men to ask Nabal a favor of providing some food and water for his men. Now, anyone would normally have gladly helped David and his men out, especially because they were warriors. Uh, if someone who's an army you know, leader comes and asks you for a favor, you're probably going to say yes, especially after they just did you a favor, a favor. But Nabal, he denies them flat out, saying, who is David? Why should I feed these men? 
Nabal's wife, Abigail, the intelligent, beautiful woman, hears of this and realizes how David is going to respond to her husband's foolishness. So she meets David while he's on his way to fight it out with Nabal. And she says in verse 25, My Lord, you should pay no attention to this worthless fool, Nabal, talking about her own husband, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. Ouch. She did not hold back. And now, don't forget, we saw that Nabal is a rich and successful man. But just because he was intelligent in one sense did not mean he wasn't foolish, or as Abigail said, stupid in another. So we get to see Nabal, or fool, personified in this careless and senseless man who spurns helping David and dies actually not long after after David had just done a huge favor for him. Just as David uses the word Nabal in the psalm to describe the man who would say in his heart, there is no God, we see the man named Nabal foolishly deny David any help. Both are senseless, ignoring what is right and good, and revealing their heart of selfishness. To sum it up well, this fool described in the beginning of Psalm 14 is not an intellectual atheist or one who denies the existence of God because of reasons or proofs, but he is a practical atheist, meaning he lives as if there was no God, as if there is no sense of right and wrong. And we see this played out with the rest of verse 1 in which it says, they are corrupt, they do vile deeds, there is no one who does good. This fool is truly corrupt. As one commentator said, they are unprofitable burdens on the earth. They do God no service, bring him no honor, nor do themselves any real kindness. They're not really worth much of anything. These people, David describes, have no care in the world for God. They desire to live a life that completely ignores his existence. And then David takes this idea all the way to say that no one is good. No one. Meaning that all of us naturally live as if there were no God. We may not be at the same level of foolishness as the man named Nabal, but we all have had hearts disinclined toward God and his ways. Wanting to live our lives our way instead. And now this is crucial to understand especially in the context of our society today. There is no one who does good, meaning everyone has this natural, sinful tendency within them. This includes great people like Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., and even all of our sweet, sweet grandmas. We all have lived a life apart from God not desiring him or his will, but instead desiring our own will and our own way in life, regardless of whether it's good or not. We have all made decisions and had thoughts that ignore and don't care that there is a God. And this life looks like what David says in the first verse. It's corrupt and full of vile deeds. 
So how does God respond to this? What action does God take? This takes us to our second point. God desires us. We desire anything but him. God desires us. We desire anything but him. Let's read verses 2 and 3 now of Psalm 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. David now zooms out all the way to the perspective of God in heaven, looking down on his creation. And who do we see God looking for? One who is wise or understands. One who seeks God. Here we see God's heart. He doesn't hear this rumor of his creation being rebellious and just punish them blindly. He's not some far-off, distant God who could care less about all that he's created. Instead, we see a God who is intently looking upon his creation. He cares for and is actively involved with all that he created. And we also see God is not looking for the successful, the wealthy, the ones who have their lives all together. God is seeking after any who are wise to understand who they truly are and who God is. Any who are seeking after God himself. God is seeking this out because he knows what is best for us. After all, he created us. And what is best for us is himself. What is best for us is himself. Here is another crucial truth that collides and grinds against humans' desires and lifestyles since the fall of man all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We humans created by God were created to live dependently on God. He always has been and always will be the one and only thing to satisfy our longing hearts. Psalm 1611 states, You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. God is the source of life, of joy, and eternal pleasures. But as we see from Scripture, from history, this very psalm and our own lives, humanity does not seek after God. For we desire to live independently, proudly boasting we know what is best for ourselves. All the while, living lives that are always seeking after satisfaction, delight, joy, peace, and comfort, but never truly finding them. Because God was intended to be that for us in every way. The problem behind all this is what David made clear in verse 1. We want nothing to do with God. We are fools. We ignore him and say to ourselves, there is no God. We fill ourselves up with careers. We try to be the best parent, spouse, boyfriend, or girlfriend. All so that we can feel fulfilled and important. We fill our hearts with temporary and destructive pleasures that leave us feeling empty, defeated, 
or even shameful at the end of the day. All the while saying to ourselves, there is no God. So as verse 2 says, we all have turned away. We all alike have become corrupt. Isaiah 53 has some uh, similar language to this psalm. If you'd like, you can turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 6. It says, We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. We naturally, truly, and sadly desire anything but God. Yet how does God respond to our disinterest and our wandering away? The rest of verse 6 says, And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. This is referring to Jesus. The Lord has punished Jesus for the iniquity of us all. Wait, why? Why would God punish him? Why would God punish Jesus, his only son, for all of our iniquity? It's quite simple. He loves us. God loves us. He knew there was nothing in and of ourselves that would draw us to him again. There was nothing we could do to repay the debt of our sins and our rebellion against him. So he provided that perfect once and for all sacrifice through the death of his son, Jesus. God in the flesh, who became man to die for you and for me. As David says at the end of verse 3, there is no one who does good, not even one. So God stepped up to provide the way back into relationship with him, where we were created to be all along, wholly and completely dependent on him. All because God loves us and desires us to repent and to be with him again. As 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So we see that God desires us, but we naturally desire anything but him. Turning away and becoming corrupt which led David to the definitive statement, there is no one who does good, not even one. For those who continue down this path of foolishness and life apart from God, where does it lead them? This takes us to the third point. Do we understand? Do we understand? Going back to Psalm 14 now, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 6. Here David focuses, or let me read it first. That's a good idea. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord 
Then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. So David focuses back into his own perspective now, describing how these evildoers in his own life, in the life of people he know, are persecuting, mistreating, and oppressing God's people, and what the outcome of all their actions will be. These are the ones who will eat people like bread, as David says, which was a common biblical metaphor for taking advantage of the helpless. These people will not call on the Lord. They will not cry out to God in humility and repentance. Instead, as verse 5 says, then they will be filled with dread because God is with those who are righteous. The time will come for people to reap what they have sown, to stand before God and give an answer to their rebellion and wickedness. Romans chapter 14 starting in the second part of verse 10, states, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will praise, give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So of course they're filled with dread. They've been living a life saying to themselves, There's no God doing whatever they want, acting out against God's people. And now they face God himself, the refuge of the oppressed and the one who is with the righteous. So as those reading and hearing David's words of warning today, we must reflect on our own hearts. Do we understand? Do we understand who we are as sinful people? Do we understand that a life without God is really no life at all? Do we understand who God is and the judgment he will be faithful and just to provide? Do we understand what lies in wait at the end of a life that says in its heart, there is no God? I urge you to examine your heart. Do you desire God with all of your being? Or do you live as if there is no God? David's words are sobering, bringing his listeners back to reality and implicitly warning them to not be like these fools and these evildoers, but to be one who calls on the Lord instead, to seek the Lord as a refuge, to understand and to know and say in your heart, there is a God. This takes us to our final point this morning. God is faithful to deliver and restore. God is faithful to deliver and restore. Let's read. The last verse of Psalm 14, verse 7. David says, Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. David pleads for Israel's deliverance. He is praying for God to come and rescue and to save his people. David's final words are a natural response to the realities he and the people of God were facing. As David made it clear in the previous verses, God's people faced many evildoers who did, who did terrible and horrible things to them. So we see David in the final lines of this psalm, crying out to God to rescue them. And he goes on to say, when, not if, but when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, 
When God makes right what has been stolen, twisted, and corrupted, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. May God's people celebrate and rejoice over the restoration he brings when God makes right all that was wrong. May we rejoice when God is faithful to deliver and to restore. And what's cool about this final prayer, this final plea from David, is that it applies as much today as it did to David and the rest of God's people back then. For us today, we face our own persecutions, our own oppressions, and especially our brothers and sisters in countries who want nothing to do with God. So we can pray as David did, that God would deliver his people, knowing that ultimately Christ will return for his second coming, and that God's people will be delivered and restored eternally forever. Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 state, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. How wonderful does that sound? When God's salvation fully and ultimately overcomes man's wickedness, it will be a great and glorious day. So let us not be like Nabal, the true fool himself, who spurned what was good, rejected what was right and beneficial, but instead embrace God our Savior and the salvation he has for his people, knowing that we are not good, but God is, and he is our refuge and our salvation. One way we can remember and celebrate this is through the Lord's Supper, which we will be partaking in this morning. So I invite those I ask to come on up, um, and Zach, go ahead and come on up as well. As they're working their way up, I want to just explain a bit about the Lord's Supper. We do this in remembrance of what Christ has done for us, sacrificing his body and shedding his blood on our behalf. Because as we read this morning, none of us are good, not even one. So we partake in the Lord's Supper to remind us of our insufficiency before God and Christ's perfect sacrifice on our behalf to restore and make new what was once broken. So what this means is that for those of you here today who do not trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. We ask that you observe during this time of remembrance to pass the plate on to the next person as it comes by and to not partake in the bread and juice as it carries no meaning for you. For those who do believe, the trays will be passed around and the cups are going to be double stacked like we typically do. So you'll have a juice and cracker and two cups double stacked. So just make sure to grab one of those double stacked cups and then pass the plate down to the next person. Instrumental is going to be playing as we're passing out the Lord's Supper. So feel free to join in song as Zach slowly uh, starts singing. Or use this time to pray, to reflect, and to rejoice in what Christ has done for you and for me. Once the servers have made their way back up to the front and everyone has received their cups, I will read the first passage on the Lord's Supper. We'll pray, and then we will eat the bread. Then I'll read the second passage. We'll pray, and we'll drink the juice. So hold on to both cups and wait until... I lead us in the scripture and prayer, and then we will respond in one final song after we finish the Lord's Supper.